0: Where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, July 13th, we are studying Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. The cycle restarts. After a time of rest, Israel again rebels against the Lord by their idolatry. When the Lord sells them into the hand of their enemies, they cry out for help. And he sends a deliverer. This time it is Barak, who receives the Lord's call through the prophetess Deborah. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Joel Hawk. Pastor Hawk serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Rochester, Minnesota. Pastor Hawk, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Thank you, Pastor Apple. Good to be with you again today.
0: As we get started this morning, Pastor Hawk, give us some context in the book of Judges, the new cycle, a new section of sorts here in the book. It's probably good, though, just to do a bit of review as we jump into this text.
1: Yes, the the cycle that uh, reappears every once in a while in the in the book of Judges, it kind of is the framework for the book, is described in Judges uh, chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. Um, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them, They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Uh, so for Israel in the book of Judges, it's kind of a just a lather, rinse, repeat. Um, they, they do evil and worship false gods. The Lord gives them or sells them into the hand of an oppressing nation. Um, eventually, they cry out to him again, and he sends someone to save them. Uh, and that, uh, that cycle continues uh, on uh, various tracks throughout the book.
0: Right, so we're here at the beginning of another one of those cycles. This one is is titled, at least in the ESV, Deborah and Barak. So we're going to consider those two particularly, probably Barak as the deliverer, as we'll see. So let's go ahead and and start looking at the text. We're in Judges chapter 4 this morning, beginning at verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So there's the the first three verses that give us the setup for this cycle. The people of Israel rebel against the Lord. They did evil evil in his sight, which is not just sort of any kind of immorality, but idolatry is what we're talking about here. And the enemy this time is Jabin, king of Canaan. What kind of background do we need to know about these enemies that helps set up this text for us?
1: Yeah, so we uh, see kings in Hazor, um, kind of northern p- part of the conquest of northern Canaan in the book of Joshua, Joshua 11. Um, and Joshua defeats one of this Jabin's ancestors, who is also named Jabin, although that may be a familial name or even an honorific title. The name uh, seems to mean something like the discerning or the wise one. Uh, so maybe just a title given to these uh, kings, but also could be a dynastic name as well. We know of you know Henry the Eighth and and you know on from there. Uh, um, at that time, they burned the city, um, and so now you know, we don't know the history in between whether the Canaanites, Canaanites have taken or rebuilt Hazor or rebuilt it on their own as part of uh, Israel's inability uh, to take all of the allotment given them. Um, now that now Canaanites are are living in Hazor with this king uh, Jabin again. Um, northern Naphtali seems to be the the region that this is located in. Uh, part of the trick with this text is we don't know. Uh, besides Mount Tabor and a couple of the other locations, we don't know the exact locations and geographies um, necessarily. But uh, seems to be happening in in northern northern Israel, kind of north north of the Sea of Galilee, seems to be the context of Hazor. Um, Sisera, um, his uh, his commander, uh, is is. Uh, Said he lives in Harosheth uh, Hagoyim. Um, the the best again, the kind of best understanding of where that location is is about 35 miles uh, from Hazor, actually, as the crow flies, uh, toward the Mediterranean Sea, uh, kind of on the boundary where uh, of Asher and Manasseh uh, for the uh, you know for the allotment of the tribes. Um, you know, Jabin either you know is controlling a large part of this, or or there's uh, you know. Perhaps even Sisera is uh, just a mercenary, uh, kind of leading whatever army he's paid best to lead. So maybe leading this army for, uh, for Jabin uh, you know, with 900, 900 chariots plus foot soldiers, as we uh, learn later in the text. And uh, part of the setup here is understanding, hey, Israel's army, uh, whoever they have and however they have, is going to be no earthly match uh, for these 900 chariots. This is technology and skill that uh, uh, the Israelites just would not have uh, at this uh, point.
0: So I mean, yeah, the, the 900 chariots of iron is a pretty pretty big deal that, that Israel has no earthly power, we should probably say it that way, no earthly power mm-hmm. to fight against these these enemies on their own.
1: Yeah, correct. Uh, but uh, the, the text sets us up to uh, uh, you know kind of see okay, the, the earthly forces are one thing. Uh, Israel uh, once again has a force on their side. Uh, that they're, you know, that they're going to recognize again as they cry out to the Lord, uh, the 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 name Yahweh uh, there for help, and we're we're set up for this, uh, then to kind of to see uh, how this might play out uh, if we remember the the Exodus narrative, uh, Exodus three. Uh, as as uh, the Lord is uh, talking with Moses, he says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egypts and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now this is verse 9. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Uh, And we know how that account ultimately plays out. The Lord delivers them with a mighty hand uh, uh, through the Red Sea, and so you know we're the the way this sets up. But we're we're prepared to see Yahweh act again uh, to rescue and uh, redeem Israel to save them, answering their cry Um, as an example of what we see in the Psalms. uh, Places like Psalm 107, verse six: They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. Hmm. Uh, So we're 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 kind of primed to to see what uh, God will do.
0: All right, so the text then continues. We're in Judges 4, verse 4 and following. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory." for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with them. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zaanim, which is near Kadesh. All right, we'll pause there. So this is more more of the introductory material in terms of leading up to the battle. So the people have cried out, and now the Lord is going to send help. And this this part of Judges is a bit unique in the way that it's set up. We meet two characters at this time, two figures in this account. One, Deborah, who's called a prophetess, and says is is she's judging Israel is the way it's translated. And then she's going to call Barak and tell him to lead the army. So let's start with Deborah, Pastor Hawk. What's what do we know about Deborah? What's significant about her from this text?
1: Yeah, as you, as you mentioned, she is a, a prophetess uh, who is uh, again the one judging Israel here. Um, you know she's uh, uh, she you know in a line of prophetesses in the Bible, including uh, Miriam, uh, Aaron's sister. We meet Hulda uh, later in Second Kings, and even Anna in the New Testament is described as a prophetess. So this is uh, uh, an office that uh, uh, that the Lord uh, uh, fills from time to time. Uh, she's uh, she's listed as the the judge here. the The Hebrew word is the the, sho, the shofet or the uh, the judges are the shofetim. Uh, those who seem to be those governing. Uh, if there's a governing authority or at least giving decisions for uh for the, the the good of the people uh in that way um you know and as we see whatever however her role uh, kind of plays out you know she's 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 portrayed in a very positive light um here in uh the text um uh, you know certainly most of the rest of the judges uh, have their own problems uh, that we that we meet uh, along the way which is uh part of the story uh deborah herself seems to be situated a lot farther south than a lot of the action of the rest of this text uh, between rama and bethel uh closer to where is jerusalem is um and she is uh you know she's she's governing them and she's also uh perhaps are going up to her also to to seek the answers to their cries to to yahweh for help uh that they know she's been sent by yahweh in this office and uh, uh they're going to to her for uh, help and and in some in some parts of deliverance and uh, understanding the way the Lord might lead them. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, Deborah is is unique, it seems, in the book of Judges, not only for the fact that, that she's a woman, but the, the matter of prophetess, the way that she is portrayed, I think, is pretty much entirely positive, whereas with a lot of the other judges, you get at least one or two aspects of the narrative that portray them in a more negative light. For example, coming up after this, we'll meet Gideon, and we see him doubting from time to time. The end of his account is rather unfortunate, if I can put it that way. Samson, of course, we, we know him pretty well, and, and he's got plenty of flaws when it comes to the way that his story goes. Uh, Barak, in this account, we see the sins that he commits, the doubts that he seems to have. Deborah, on the other hand, doesn't really seem to have any of that. She's portrayed quite positively. She's also labeled the prophetess, which you laid out very well for us, this office that God fills from time to time. And, and she, she also seems, in terms of how you would characterize the book of Judges, where someone is called by God for a particular moment in time for a particular part of Israel, for example, Ehud and, and Barak and Gideon and so forth, as we will see, Deborah, it seems, has a bit more of an ongoing role. Like, she's she's already been a prophetess. She's already been doing some of this ruling in Israel. And she, in that role that she already has, is going to participate now in what God is going to do through Barak. So I guess um, I'm, all of that is to, to invite us to reflect a little bit on, so who's the judge here in the sense that we're talking about the book of Judges?
1: Yeah, you know, in, in Judges, we meet both judges and uh, also some, some leaders and people are labeled deliverers or the, uh, uh, the, the rescuers. And that's, that's a, a term actually related to uh, the name of Joshua, the name of, of Jesus, even um, Yeshua, salvation. Um, the 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 deliverers uh we meet from time to time sometimes uh, the same word uh, judges and deliverers are used of one individual um here it seems split so uh the judge uh it seems is is deborah it's the one uh, that that is doing the judging the people are going up to her for judgment um but uh, in later texts uh, both in first samuel 12 and in hebrews 11 Barak is included in uh, those who are uh, understood to to be the deliverers of Israel in this time. Uh, So, yeah, it it is a unique uh, text, it seems, in in the book of Judges where these two things are split and we have both at the same time in two different people. Um, As I reflect on on Deborah's role in this account as well, I I think especially as a prophetess, she she is the one delivering the word of God here. Uh, she is the one who is, uh, uh, you know, encouraging Barak and, and giving him the word from the Lord. Uh, and so her role as judge, her role as prophetess uh, sets her up in that light. Uh, Barak is the one who uh, is, you know, used by God to deliver the people, although we'll see in a, a unique and uh, um, interesting way uh, in its own right. Hmm.
0: Yeah. So so whatever, I mean, however we're going to characterize the two, they're both very key figures here. Deborah the prophetess, she sends for Barak. And what is the message, what is the call from God that Deborah gives to Barak, starting in verse 6 of the text?
1: Verse 6, uh, she says, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 uh, from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, uh, two uh, uh, ter- tribes with northern territories, uh, again, reflecting that uh, uh, that location for uh, where we see the enemy's uh, strongholds in Hazor. and." Harosheth uh, Hagoyim, and uh, uh, where Jabin and Sisera are, and uh, she uh, uh, she tells him to uh, uh, to do that. Um, it, it does seem as the as the way this text uh, goes out that, that that perhaps, although there's no kind of. Call ahead of time that uh, Barak stands in the line of uh, of others who were a little bit hesitant to uh, to go out and follow the word of the Lord. People like um, Moses and uh, Jonah and other judges, uh, Gideon uh, later will come to mind as well. That uh, uh, you know maybe heard the word of the Lord once and now now Deborah's uh, being another mouthpiece of the Lord. You know hasn't the Lord uh, commanded you? Uh, you know you need to go and do this. And, uh, and you know, the Lord says, then I will draw out Sisera. I'll draw out the general of Jabin's army uh, to meet you, and I will give him into your hand. Uh, this is what the Lord has said to Barak, and he's saying it again uh, through Deborah. Uh, so, uh, again, for, for Barak's side, maybe we see a little bit of hesitancy, a little bit of doubt, uh, but at the same time, we see the Lord's uh, uh, desire to save and rescue his people, even through uh, uh, reluctant uh, humans within the story.
0: Mm-hmm. That, that aspect of the text is something that we... Definitely need to see throughout this chapter, Judges 4 today, that this is going to be the Lord's hand doing the delivering. And and here in verses 6 and 7, where Deborah is speaking to Barak, it, it may be a little hard to catch. We need to pay attention to where the quotation marks are rightly placed, that when it says, for example, in verse 7, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you. The I there, and later, I will give him into your hand. That I is Yahweh. That's the Lord. Deborah's not saying, I, Deborah, will do it. But this is the Lord speaking through Deborah. I, the Lord, will do this. And so and this is a, an insight you sent me in your notes, Pastor Rock, which I think is just brilliant here, that not only is the army that Barak is going to lead under the Lord's command, but in fact, the army that Sisera is going to lead is also under the Lord's command.
1: Yes, Yahweh is in control uh, of this whole thing, uh, uh, the, the verb, uh, you know, that's used there for, for gathering, um, you know, go gather your men, um, at Mount Tabor, and the, the verb, uh, I will draw out Sisera, those are actually the same verb in, in the Hebrew. We might use the word perhaps deploy, uh, to kind of bring that out, to, you know, uh, the command to Barakah, deploy your men, and then God says, yeah, I will deploy, uh, Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you, and I'll give you in, into your hand, um, the lord uh working this deliverance for his people from from both ends and both angles and uh, uh seeing the lord at work uh through uh through you know human means yes but uh he wants us to see uh him uh being the one to to do everything uh in this text mm.
0: it it's, it's really quite striking and, and drawing that that comparison between those two verbs i think is just fantastic to see now on on the on the surface though so Barak's army is going to be 10,000 people. That seems pretty strong, but then 900 chariots. We start comparing the numbers that way. Who, who would have the advantage? That's where the fact that it's the Lord doing this, that's so important.
1: Right, right, and you know, looking ahead just a little bit, you know, there would be foot soldiers uh, associated with some of these chariots as well. So it wouldn't, you know, just be ten thousand to nine hundred, but uh, um, certainly uh, the chariots would would have been a superior uh, force, a superior uh, technology. Uh, you know, I'm a-, a Lord of the Rings fan. I think of uh, the the Battle of of Minas Tirith, at least as portrayed in the in the films. You know, on the one, the-, the first instance you get the the horde of uh, of the uh, uh, the orcs and the and uh, Mordor. Uh, uh, enemies, the evil, uh, the evil foe, um, way outnumbering the the horses of, of Rohan, and yet uh, you know at least for a while they, the horses hold sway because they're a superior uh, superior force. But then then the elephants uh, come in and they're they're a lot fewer than the horses, but they're a lot superior, <laughs> then as well. So a, a superior force, uh, or technology can win even if it's uh, less numbers, uh, if it's superior in size or mobility or whatever that case would be. Again, from an earthly perspective, uh, but uh, we've been set up at least a couple times in this text to know how this will go, because we know the the ultimate superior force, uh, Yahweh, uh, the Lord and God of all armies, uh, is in control of uh, both sides uh, in this encounter.
0: Mm. So this is the, the promise that Deborah has delivered to Barak, a promise from the Lord himself. And now Barak responds, and he says, if you'll go with me, I'll go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. Deborah's response, well, Sure, I'll go, but the Lord is not going to give Sisera then into your hand, but into the hand of a woman. What are we to to make of is does Barak doubt here? Does Deborah reprimand him a little bit? How do we understand this, this interaction in verses eight and nine?
1: Uh, I think the main the main point ultimately to take from this is again the the Lord is in control. The Lord's not going to accomplish this in a normal human way. Um He's not going to uh you know, let his glory be given to another. Uh, you know, Bar- Barak. Uh, neither Barak will get the glory, nor the. Nor ultimately is that phrase. You know, the glory given. Uh, to this, uh, uh, to this woman, into uh, whose hands Sisera uh, will be sold, uh, the Lord will get the glory, and that will be seen. And that uh, uh, He doesn't accomplish this in the way you might expect—that the, the commanding army, arm, the commanding officer of Israel, will get to, to you know, lay the final blow against uh, uh, the leader of, uh, of Jabin's army, Sisera. Uh, the Lord is going to do this, um, and, and again, seeing Deborah as the one uh, speaking the word of the Lord. Uh, that leads uh, uh, me at least to think, well, Barak at least has some continuing some doubt and some hesitancy that the Lord has spoken, um, if not once, you know, perhaps even twice or more uh, to him, you know, go, this is what I'm commanding you to do, and uh, yet he still wants some additional, um, you know, a- additional thing, uh, you know, he wants he wants the prophetess uh, actually with him, um, the word of the Lord seems to be not quite enough uh, for him, where uh, you know our understanding of God's word is that when God speaks, it, it is sure and certain, um, and we can trust it and, and we can take him at his word. Uh, certainly, uh, God shows His grace. Uh, you know, thinking ahead again in Judges, uh, uh, Gideon has similar doubts and asks for uh, you know signs as well. The Lord is patient and willing to uh, uh, to give that and, and do that, but always in a way that uh, reminds uh, the people involved. Uh, you know even with this it's not about you it's about me and my word and my strength uh rescuing my people uh rescuing uh the people who have cried out to me and showing uh showing them once again that I am the lord i am able to save and i am the one that they should turn to and trust at all times uh, not just when they come under oppressive foes mm,
0: right right yeah that that's that's an important thing to remember and this this hesitancy of of Baric, i don't we don't need to be afraid of seeing some sort of hesitancy from him it, like you said we see this in many of the saints of of the scriptures, Gideon in this book, Moses before him, lots of lots of people in the scriptures who are faithful and yet have doubts, and there's there's nothing wrong with seeing that. It should be a great comfort to us to see that. And then these same people, they end up in a chapter like Hebrews chapter eleven, where these these people who lived by faith, yes, they too had their doubts. And that should bring comfort to us in our doubts. So the Lord is gracious. He strengthens Barak in this faith. Deborah does go with him. Now they go first to Kadesh and then to Mount Tabor, just kind of the nuts and bolts of this text. What's, What's happening now as they begin to muster this army?
1: Yeah, they they go to Kadesh, so that would you know, potentially be a good rallying point. That's where Beric uh, himself is from, uh, and then they then they go up to uh, Mount Tabor, uh, Tabor itself. Um, isn't that high of a, of a mountain in terms of sheer elevation, uh, um, you know, maybe about 2000 feet or so, but it does rise uh, pretty, pretty high above the surrounding plain around it. So it's, a, it's an imposing uh, figure, as I understand, uh, you know, there in the northern uh, part of uh, the land. And uh, so they go up to, you know, to, to where the Lord has told them. So uh, Deborah and uh, Barak uh, show themselves uh uh, ultimately faithful to the word of the Lord, and uh, uh, they go up together in uh, uh, in uh, accord with that word.
0: Right, so the going up in verse 10 would be talking about Mount Tabor. In the, in the scriptures, when they go up and down, it's talking normally about elevation. Usually when we talk about going, like I would go up to Minnesota to come see <laughs> you, or you would come down to Texas in terms of north and south on a map. When they say go up or down, they're usually meaning quite literally in terms of elevation. So they, they go up to Mount Tabor, and the army is there, and then verse 11 is a bit of a, it just stands there by itself. At this point, we're like, well, why do I need to know that? But it becomes important later. What? Why is verse 11 here?
1: Right. Again, as, as you mentioned, it's one of these uh, kind of foreshadowing verses, and and you, you uh, you've already met this in, in Judges 3:15 with the account of Ehud. Uh, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. Benjaminite a left-handed man, and as you kind of read through the text, you know, wh- you know why, why is he singling him out as a left-hander? <laughs> um, but that becomes important later on when you realize where his where his sword would be and, and how he uh, how he uh, delivers um, Israel through Ehud. Um, here too, uh, again, as we kind of read straight through the text, we wonder why this verse about Heber, Heber is in here. Um, you know, there's no connection mentioned to Deborah or Barak or anyone uh, at this point, other than to locate him again, uh, knowing exactly where this uh, Okenzana neem is. Um, it is mentioned as part of the border uh, between, uh, between Naphtali and Issachar uh, as well. So, uh, there, was, there was at least some uh, you know, knowledge of exactly where this was, again, possibly southwest uh, of the Sea of Galilee a little bit. So this this situates Heber within kind of the region of where uh, where all of this is taking place. But again, we don't exactly know uh, why for now. Uh, he's, he separated himself from the Kenites, uh, either from a, a group that was um, further south in the Negev uh, towards the Arabian Peninsula, or perhaps there were some living uh, sort of uh, southeast of the Sea of Galilee, and he had crossed the Jordan to live uh, on the other side there um, either way he's a sort of outlier with uh, uh, of those of his people um and is is actually as we'll we'll find out uh, fairly friendly with uh, jabin uh, of hazor uh, and uh, we'll find that out later in the text, and that becomes also uh, interesting to, to note as, as the text moves on. Mm.
0: So a bit of a teaser there in verse 11 here in Judges chapter 4. So you need to make sure you hang with us to find out more. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, July 13th, and we are looking at Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. We've got Pastor Joel Hawk with us. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Rochester, Minnesota. Pastor Hawk, prior to the break, we looked at Judges 4, verses 1 through 11, had a bit of a teaser there in verse 11. We need to keep in mind Heber the Kenite so that we can see what's going to happen with him later in this account. For right now, the author continues in Judges 4, verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harashath Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. All right, that takes us through verse 16. This is the, the battle proper which is not much of a battle as, as we'll see. But, but first, I think you get the picture in verse 12 that when Barak goes up to Mount Tabor, this is seen by Sisera as a, a statement, a, a sign of rebellion. Look, here's our army, come at us, Cicero. something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean that's obviously the way it's it's taken and I can I can see that that if Jabin king of Hazor is uh you know in in command in charge uh, oppressing Israel and uh you know he, he hears the 10,000 uh, uh people gathered against uh, uh gathered at the same place uh, against him with uh, with weapons uh, that that would be seen as uh, <laughs> as a, a sign of revolt and something that needs to be uh stopped uh, immediately and so uh yeah, Sisera goes out with, with his troops he heads towards uh the Kishon River which flows uh again if, if uh, our understanding where harasheth hagoyim is uh kind of flows by there and he'll go go out uh, there to a wider plain that's situated uh you know kind of south the uh, east southwest actually of, of mount tabor and uh try to meet uh, you know the chariots are are wonderful on on kind of dry open spaces they they wouldn't be uh, very useful in the mountains so uh you know hoping that the the troops uh, do come out and attack uh in the plains where the chariots can be uh can be effective hmm. um,
0: so Deborah then addresses Barak. So the, the scene is set. Here's here's uh, Sisera's army with the chariots coming to meet Barak at the top of Mount Tabor. He's coming down, and so the scene is set for the battle. And Deborah is going to speak the word of the Lord to Barak again. And I, I think here we see a theme that is common in the book of Judges. It shows up again in Gideon that the Lord, his battle plans are, are not typically what human generals would draw up. So even when Deborah comes and speaks to Barak, it's not really a, a battle plan per se. She just says, "Look, the Lord is giving you. Get up and go."
1: Yeah, get up and go. Perhaps even get up and, and watch initially. The Lord is going out before you. Uh, you know what sort of visual there would have been um, there, other than to say, "Hey, get up, take a look, and then then go and follow because the Lord is going to do." Uh, his work against... Uh against the troops of Sisera. You don't need to be afraid uh, of, you know, even even meeting them down on the plain and uh, going down there because the Lord is going to uh, uh, fight for you. He's going to uh, go out and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, give uh, give the troops into your hand. Uh, you know, Yahweh had sold Israel into the hand of the Jabin, and now he's re- reversing that verdict and mercy for his people by giving uh, Sisera into Barak's hand. And, uh, you know, the first, 50, first part of 15 is, you know, in some ways the keystone of the text as, as Yahweh goes before Barak Yahweh fights the battle um you know earth, any earthly glory fades uh as uh Yahweh gets the glory um, the Lord you know it's very clear the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword I mean that that you know it doesn't even say by Barak in front of him um you know it, it's very clear that Yahweh is getting the glory Yahweh is doing the fighting uh, and he is the one who uh wins this battle, so to speak, or who defeats Sisera and uh, rescues his people uh, from those who are oppressing them. Mm.
0: And so this is what Deborah speaks to Barak. Look, the Lord is going to do this for you. He goes out before you. And I think that's a, an excellent thing to, to catch, Pastor Hawk, that this is, I mean, I think that is probably the picture that we need to have in our mind, that here is the Lord going to fight, and the army is following him. As he goes and wins this victory, and and I think I mean there's there's several passages I think we could consider here. Maybe let's stay close to context first before we think of other examples from the scriptures. In in Judges five we get a a song, the song of Deborah and Barak that will come, and it's a recounting of this battle that happens, but in poetic form. And and one of the things that stands out to me in chapter five that that relates to this, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow, is in five twelve. Where where you get this call, awake, awake Deborah, and arise, Barak. But what are they told to do? Deborah is told to break out in a song, and Barak is told to lead away your captives, which I think fits perfectly with this text right here. That that Barak is following the Lord. The Lord is winning the victory. And, and Beric's just, well, he's watching from behind as the Lord goes and and does his thing. And this is it's just such a wonderful picture of a salvation. By grace alone, this is not Barak's doing. It's not even Deborah's doing. This is the Lord going out and winning this victory for His people.
1: Yes, and that's that's the the picture that uh, the Lord wants us to see here. Um, you know, in to go a little further afield in another song uh, after the deliverance of the Red Sea in Exodus 15, verse three, uh, you know, Miriam and Moses and the people sing, "The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name." Uh, Yahweh is a mighty warrior uh, for his people. That's how he has grace and mercy for them against those that oppress them. And uh, for for us, uh, you know, on this side of of Christ, uh, we think of our enemies of of sin and death uh, for sure. Um, but I don't think we always have the same picture of of God and even of of Jesus. Um, but but even all the way back to you know, again, a little further afield, but looking forward to the New Testament in Isaiah, uh, there's a picture of God victorious over his enemies through his servant. Uh, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows Himself mighty against his foes. Uh, And for our sake, uh, we understand that God's ultimate foes are sin and death and the the devil and their power uh, over us, the the way they have broken and infiltrated creation and oppressed all of creation. And uh, that that widens our perspective of of what he's uh, come to do and and how he fights for us. You know, I think uh, very often. Uh, you know, Jesus uh, in the New Testament is portrayed in some places and, you know, perhaps even by yours truly at times, kind of as this, you know, milk toast, lovey-dovey sort of guy, uh, you know, very much, you know, at peace and everything, and certainly the New Testament describes Jesus as meek and gentle and, and humble in places. Uh, But even Jesus showed himself to be a power, to be powerful and a a warrior on behalf of his people and on behalf of all his creation as he battled storms and cast out demons and had stern rebukes for those who led the the people astray. Uh, And we, we, in in one uh, view of the cross and resurrection is his victory uh, over sin, death, and hell, a victory that's going to be revealed when he returns in glory, a victory we don't quite experience fully yet, as we're uh, still beset with our own sin and uh, still fall prey to disease and death and all sorts of human suffering. Uh, but uh, but the Lord is a mighty warrior for us, and he's shown that in Jesus, and he still fights for us, and he still uh, fights for us in temptation, still fights for us for our deliverance as well.
0: Mm-hmm. That is a picture of the Lord, a picture of Christ, that I think we have not fully appreciated in many respects still today maybe it's because because we live in a world that isn't or at least you know here in the United States that isn't as torn by war as some other places and so the picture of the lord as a conquering warrior maybe isn't one that we think of as often but it's definitely there in the scriptures and and just like just like you were saying and it's something that always strikes me as a bit odd exodus 15 particularly stands out where it's very clear the lord is a man of war what that that doesn't seem to be the the first picture that i tend to think of when i think of the lord but it's a picture that we that we need. What do you? I mean, what do you think we lose, Pastor Hawk, when we when we forget that aspect of who the Lord is—that He is a mighty warrior for us?
1: I think we lose actually ultimately the source of our ability to be safe and secure uh, with Him. Um, you know, Isaiah forty verses ten and eleven I think capture both sides of this. Uh, beautifully and and we need both uh, to understand God's power and strength but his power and strength to save us his power and strength to rescue us and even to comfort us and to uh, make us safe and secure Uh, Isaiah 40 10 11 say behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him the picture of God as again mighty um, strong uh, defender of his of his people but then the next verse shifts, you know, shifts gear, so to speak, but I think just gives us the 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 other part of the picture. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Uh, these aren't two opposing pictures. These are pictures that are meant to complement one another. Uh, we want the the God who uh, you know is is gentle and meek and and humble in Jesus, uh, the one who protects us, the one who is uh, who you know does not uh, snuff out the the burning the, the smoldering wick, the one who does not break the bent reed. Uh, yet also is strong to defend those. Is also strong to protect them. Is also strong to hold them in his arms, uh, so that they can be safe and secure in his love and in his strength for them. Uh, if, if God were somehow you know weak <laughs> or uh, you know unable to do that, we couldn't be safe and secure in him. At the same time, if we only saw his uh, strength and might and power, uh, you know, if we saw only that, yeah, we would only be able to tremble in fear. Uh, so he gives us both pictures so that we get a complete picture of the God who is strong to save and who desires to save and uh, be on uh, the side of his people against their, their foes. Mm,
0: yeah, there's, there's so much that, that is there for us in this picture of the Lord as a conquering hero that we do have to hold together with the picture of him as a a gentle, a meek Savior. And meek does not mean weak it, true strength is seen in gentleness just in the the ability to you actually have to be strong to hold something very gently and to hold something securely if if you're not strong and if you're not strong enough then you'll simply crush that in your arms it does take true strength to hold something with gentleness and care and so we we need the lord to be both we need him to be both because of just how deadly our enemies are, I think sometimes maybe we forget that, just how deadly sin, death, and the devil really are, and how weak we are in the face of those, that we need someone to come and defeat those soundly and surely for us. And and if we forget this picture of the Lord as a conquering warrior, then then we, we miss that. And, and we see him then, the way that that power comes to us, and the reason that it is good news to us is exactly what you said, because he, he shows it to us in his mercy. There's, and I, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to quote this correctly, but there's a there's a collect in the church here that says, O Lord, your power is shown chiefly in showing mercy, which is a fantastic thing, that that we know that as the Lord exercises his power to conquer his enemies— that he does so for the sake of showing mercy to us, his children. And the place where we see that most clearly is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So whenever we, we see this picture of the Lord, particularly in the Old Testament, as a conquering hero, these are the things we need to keep in mind and always looking forward to that final victory that our Lord wins for us in his own death and resurrection, showing his power there to show us mercy. So we see this foreshadow of it here in Judges 4 the Lord routs Sisera. This is this is not a not a halfway victory that our Lord wins is it?
1: No, no, and I think that that's the other piece that completes this picture of, of God's uh, power for us over um, the ultimate enemies of sin, death, and the devil, and certainly um, you know over the enemies of Sisera and other armies in the Old Testament as well. But he's not a he's not a halfway God. He defeats our enemies totally and completely uh, when when he uh, acts to save. Uh, he doesn't to kind of leave a, a remnant uh, uh, behind uh, to potentially uh, uh, you know cause more more havoc. Uh, certainly. In in our situation here, we you know we also uh, understand the the now and not yet for us that hey we're we're still kind of in some ways beset by sin and death, but not uh, not in such a way that we fear them or that they are somehow not defeated. Jesus has completely defeated them, uh, sin, death, hell, the devil. Uh, we only wait for that to be revealed and brought to us. Our- on the last day his cross and resurrection are are the ultimate victory they are what bring about uh, god's victory over those forces and uh yeah the fact that uh you know all the army of sisera fell by the edge of the sword not a man was left uh wanting to extol god's complete victory um over the foes of israel at this point mm.
0: now it it seems though that sisera for the time being gets a what gets away what happens with sisera right now
1: Yeah, you know, verse 17 uh, says, uh, you know, he fled away on foot. Uh, you know, it seems that he you know, jumped jumped down out of his chariot, perhaps, and uh, you know maybe that's why he's uh, you know kind of not pursued with the rest of them. Uh, you know, if you, if you got an army and most of them running one way, and you see one or two stragglers uh, running the other direction, you're probably not going to be too uh, uh, troubled about them. So uh, again, perhaps uh, barracks troops think he's just a common foot soldier. You know, hey, better just keep pursuing the main army, uh, and they do that, and they uh, uh, you know again depending on the exact geography and where the battle's engaged, you know this could. Be a, this could have been a 12 to 15 mile pursuit down to a haroshef uh, uh Hagoyim or or those regions um and so uh, uh so yeah barracks not with the, the main army that falls but uh, again we've been set up to uh Understand, you know, complete victory will be done, but not in a way we expect, and so we're, we're still kind of waiting for our foot to drop. Well, hey, it looks right now that Barak and his army, uh, you know, maybe do get glory, maybe do understand, you know, do uh, win the day, uh, but there's something still coming. Mm.
0: So a few a few loose ends that have been teased for us in the first part of the text that are going to be tied together here at the end. So we are now in Judges 4, beginning at verse 17 again. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him, and drove the peg into his temple, until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him, and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, And there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. That is the rest of the text for today. That was Judges 4, verses 17 through 24. So Sisera has gotten away for the time being. And, and here is, is where we see these, these pieces that were set up earlier start to become important. So he goes to the wife of Heber the Kenite, who was introduced to us earlier. Now, what, what's going on here? Why does, why does Sisera go here?
1: Uh, well, as as the text mentions, there's there's peace between uh, the the house of Heber the Kenite and Jabin the king of Hazor, so he thinks he's in uh, friendly territory. Uh, he's you know, this is perhaps again depending on the exact geography, perhaps even kind of behind enemy lines, kind of doubling back, uh, maybe on a route to Hazor as well uh, to uh, get under the protection of Jabin uh, once more. Perhaps if he's if he's wanting to to get there, uh, and so. Uh, again, he, th- he thinks at least as he meets JL and whether this was in his intended destination or whether you know just as he's fleeing, he realizes where he's at and says, oh maybe I can get there And uh, he would he would have uh, uh, expected a-, a friendly and warm uh, welcome uh, from this house. Uh, because he knew there would he would have known there was peace uh, shalom uh there was good relationships between heber and uh, jabin uh, as well and so going into the going to the finding the tents of Jael the wife of Heber uh would have uh, been uh uh again something he would have expected to find welcome at
0: all right so so he he goes in to this tent at her invitation and mm-hmm. and is expecting to find a friendly relationship. He's expecting to find exactly what he ends up asking for. I mean, he asks for all of this this help from her, the, the basic needs of, of body, and then some protection if anybody comes looking. Because he, he knows he's being pursued. He knows that they want the the Israelites want to take him to kill him. And so he expects to receive this from JL. And well, this is this is one of those spots in the book of, I can't remember the first time I read this, but, but this one and Ehud before it were, were those texts when I was a young boy reading the scriptures for the first time. It's like, wow, this is a really awesome story. So (laughs) what, what, what is, what's going on with JL? What do we need to, I mean, what does she do? Why does she do it? Let's talk a little bit about her.
1: Yeah, well, we can answer what we can of that. Yeah, we, we find out, uh, you know, how uh, verse 9 of, you know, what Deborah says that the, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. We see how that's fulfilled. Uh, we get the picture, too, again, God kind of turning things upside down a little bit here, um, you know, Cicero is is uh, fleeing to this tent. Um, you know Cicero is big. You know we expect him to be a big, strong commander of of armies and chariots. Uh, we expect him to be in control, and he he seems to take you know try to take control of, of everything. But but Jael, you know she she comes out to meet him. She invites him uh, in. Uh, she covers him up. He asks for water. She gives him gives him milk uh you know he makes this request uh, you know to to you know pro- for protection and then ultimately you know she uh, she doesn't even uh, deny that request she, you know she herself is the one who brings danger uh to him mm-hmm. um you, you know we don't uh you know our, our questions don't get answered uh like we'd want you know was this was this somehow ethical on uh, JL's part as an agent of the Lord? You know, she's not described that way necessarily. We're told the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, uh, but we don't, we don't know uh, what JL's motives uh, here are. Is she, you know, faithful to God? Is she just, you know, or is she wanting to get back at her husband for some reason and uh, cause trouble between him and Jabin? Um, You know, is this ethical? Is deceitful? You know, why, why is she doing this if there's peace between the two? Uh, We'd love to have those questions answered. uh, But, uh, but I think in that way the text helps us r- retain our focus on you know God's God's word coming true. Uh, you know the Lord sells uh, Sisera into the hand of a woman and the Lord's you know, deliverance uh, for his people, as the last couple of verses uh, bring out again for us. So the, the text helps us uh, with our unanswered questions focus on uh, the main thing uh, in, in the way that God gives victory. Uh, and I think that's maybe instructive for us as we look at all the flawed, Uh, characters of the whole of scripture uh, that uh, you know the human agent uh, in some ways doesn't matter much. God's going to rescue his people. He's willing to work through and in spite of fallen, sinful, impure people. We've mentioned Gideon and Samson before um, and uh, and their flaws and foibles. And and even, even there, right, Gideon's victory happens through 300 men with torches and horns. Samson's last victory happens when he's blind and chained up and cries to the Lord to give him strength. Uh, so the Lord is going to do uh, to do his work, and uh, um, you know, whoever and however that happens, uh, again from our perspective, may not look uh, <laughs> um, clean and neat and what, like we might expect God to work, but uh, He's going to do it so that He gets the glory, and uh, um, He uh, is shown as the deliverer of Israel.
0: In in the midst of what are very messy times, the book of Judges, I think that's a maybe a very mild way of putting it. Messy times in the book of Judges, the Lord over and over again shows His faithfulness to do precisely what he says he will do even when he does it through these uh, rather I mean this gruesome ways, if nothing else we should we can say that here that it is a, a gruesome way to mm-hmm. to kill a person and, and again her, her motives, we don't know and, and as you say, are relatively unimportant because the key here is that the Lord is doing what he said he would do. He is defeating his people's enemies just as he, promised. And and why she does it, that's that's kind of a secondary question that the text doesn't really answer for it. The The point is that God did what he said he would do. And, and so the, the text gives us then that conclusion. It's, it's a very, again, a very memorable end that, that Sisera meets. Uh, Barak gets to see the work of, of Jael there at the end, and you can only imagine maybe what's going through through his mind. The text concludes that God then did what he said. He subdued the king of Canaan, Jabin, and they. It doesn't say they had rest. They're gonna. They're gonna get that at the end of of, De- of Ch- Judges chapter five. After the the recounting in the song, the the rest will come. But but the key is the Lord did what he said he would do. Pastor Hawk, we got just about three minutes here for concluding comments. Make make sure we make sure we see Christ in all of this.
1: Yeah, I think uh, you know just to kind of conclude with this portion here. We see God working both directly and indirectly, or we might use the phrases immediately for directly, and immediately, uh, for indirectly, um, sometimes he'll work, you know, by the bare strength of his arm. Sometimes he'll work through human agents, or uh, you know, even through the uh, the natural means, if you will, uh, you know, so to speak, of, of the world. But he's in control. He is uh, fighting for his people, uh, and uh, giving them, uh, you know, as you said, you know, meet the phrase, giving them rest at the end of chapter five. But that's that's the 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 account here is is what's going on. God giving rest to his people through his strength and through his might. And as we as we look to Christ, as we look to his work for us in uh, Jesus, our Savior, our deliverer, uh, the one who redeems us, uh, and uh and, you know, he you know, the financial language of being sold into the hand of uh, you know, our enemies and and sold in the hand of a woman, you know, the, the language of redeemer is also kind of financial language. Christ buys us back. Christ redeems us at the price of his own blood. He is our deliverer. He is our savior. His name uh, you know, is related to that word for uh, deliverance and salvation uh, here in the Old Testament. Um, ultimately, Matthew, you know, Matthew 1 reminds us he saves us from our sin. Uh, the whole of the New Testament uh, shows us he saves us from eternal death. And not uh, from the power of the devil and hell, and uh, he he fights for us in his cross and resurrection, uh, both together. Yeah, the, the cross is not uh, you know, the, the cross is not only weakness; it is God's strength in weakness. It is God doing what uh, what he's going to do in a very you know kind of upside down sort of way, not the way we might expect it, uh, but doing it for our good, for our salvation, and uh, to uh, to bring us deliverance from our enemies, sin, death, and and the devil.
0: Pastor Joel Hawk is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Rochester, Minnesota, helping us today with Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. Pastor Hawk, thanks for being our guest today.
1: You're welcome. Good to be with you again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
0: The book of Judges has all kinds of accounts like this, where the Lord works deliverance through rather unusual, rather gruesome means, yet the key is the Lord is working his deliverance. It was not Barak who won the battle. It was the Lord who won the battle, and Barak followed him in that victory. He received it in faith, just as we receive the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ in faith. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.